It's 1209, Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. So glad to have you with us. Um, coming up in about an hour or so, I, I'm going to play a, a news report. It is either the most troubling or, in some respects, inspirational news story I've come across today. It involves a, a carjacker and his confrontation with a veteran. If you want to see the news story, and more importantly, the... Um, the video camera report, I mean, this this is this attempted carjacking, actually, he was able to ultimately get away with the car, is all captured on a surveillance camera. If you want to see it, it's called, you can simply text the word VET, V-E-T, to 414-799-1620. That's the Accident Mortgage Talk and Text Line. If you text me the word VET, I will send you a link to the story, and we'll be talking about it probably during the 1 o'clock hour of the show, and I, I am going to be playing a good portion of the report on the radio as well. But if you want to get a head started, Text me the word VET, VET, 414-799-1620. We start off today's show like we start off every show with three big things. And and I want to acknowledge for several topics today, I'm sort of a contraindicator. By that, I mean I understand that there is a conventional way of looking at things, and I'm not necessarily going down the road most often taken. Big story number one. Aurora Sinai Hospital getting all sorts of bad press today as a result of, again, some pictures that were taken and and went public. I mean, here's the way, for example, the journal Sentinel reports this. An undisclosed number of employees at Aurora Sinai Medical Center, and that's the one downtown, um, were suspended Tuesday after reports that a mentally ill homeless patient was discharged and left on a cold, wet sidewalk outside the hospital. A photo and video of a shoeless man clad in pants and what appears to be a hospital gown and sitting on a sidewalk outside the hospital began circulating on social media and television stations after the incident allegedly occurred on Monday. Eva Walsh, the director of Street Angels Milwaukee Outreach, said the person who took the video told her the man was rolled across the street from the hospital in a wheelchair and left on the sidewalk outside the facility, 945 North 12th Street. Um, Walsh said the man is mentally ill and was brought to a shelter two weeks before by the West Dallas police after being treated at a different hospital for frostbite to his right uh, foot. Basic Humanity tells you it's not okay to take a mentally ill person and leave him on the sidewalk like this. Um, She also said a Street Angels outreach worker witnessed a similar incident two weeks ago in which Aurora security personnel left another discharged homeless patient on the sidewalk in freezing temperatures. They literally rolled him out in a wheelchair onto the sidewalk. Okay, and so then they're talking about, all right, um, you know, how, how terrible this is. Aurora comes out and they say um, any employees involved in this were suspending, suspended pending an investigation, and we're going to set up a task force to address the issue of homeless patients and ensure safe discharge planning for vulnerable individuals. All right. Well, the, the details of the story are a little bit more interesting. This guy who they put out on the street is what is known in the community as a hospital jumper. Um, what that means is that he is a guy who goes from hospital to hospital during like the cold weather seeking to get admitted and so he can have a, a place to stay. So th- this is an ongoing sort of thing where one hospital discharges him 
And then, you know, he ends up, you know, back in another hospital and, and they end up discharging him. Now, it is interesting because this homeless group and I understand they're, they're doing they're doing God's work that they, they say they're, they're outraged by this. But of course, the man was picked up a while ago, a couple weeks ago by West Dallas police. He was taken to a shelter and then he, he's left. He's either thrown out or he leaves the shelter. And so he's, he's back into the hospital again. Now, again, they call him what they say is a hospital jumper, one of these guys who goes from hospital to hospital and who does this looking for places to stay. Part of the problem, of course, with this is we have laws in this state which make it almost impossible for mentally ill people to be confined unless you can prove that they are either a danger to themselves or a danger to someone else, which is almost impossible to do until they have, in fact, acted out, and by then it's too late. So I I want to, again, I I understand why people are appalled at this and the hospital employees just, you know, taking the guy out and leaving him on the sidewalk. But I want to raise this larger issue. What is the hospital to do? 414-799-1620. 414-799-1620. That's the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. All right, you convene this task force. What is the hospital to do? Obviously, you know, the hospital is not a homeless shelter or a hostel. You have somebody who shows up who obviously has mental health problems or whatever. They, they show up. They want to be admitted to the hospital or whatever. All right, the hospital gets them. The hospital treats them. The hospital discharges them. There's no place for them to go. They don't have a home. They presumably don't want to go to a shelter because, like I say, this guy, the the West Dallas police found him after he'd been discharged from another hospital. They took him to a homeless shelter, and now he's back out on the street. What is the hospital to do? Is the hospital at fault for this? Because obviously the hospital has to do something with him. Now, and, and let's let's broaden this. I mean, what if this was a bar or a restaurant? What if this guy shows up looking to get in outside the cold, out of cold? What if this is city hall? What if this is the public library? And it comes time for him to close, or they got to get him out, and they put him out and put him back out on the streets. I mean, are they to be blamed for this? Or is this a much more complex issue? Now, I understand because it's a hospital, people are absolutely outraged. And I get that you should have a better system in figuring out how to handle something like this. But when you have someone who, again, was taken to a shelter, leaves that shelter to go back into a hospital, what is the hospital supposed to do? 414-799-1620. And I, I just, I understand this is a tough issue. I understand that everybody who sees this broadcast says, oh, how appalling Aurora is. How could they possibly do it? But all right, you know, what, what do you end up doing when you have somebody who does this constantly, bounces back, gets himself admitted to hospitals, and then doesn't want to leave? What are they supposed to do? You can't keep them forever, can you? 414-799-1620. Let's start with Lisa in Mequon. Lisa, you're on WTMJ. Hello. Hi there, Jeff. What do you think they should uh, do? Have, I think at the very minimum they should do is to clothe the gentleman mm-hmm. and p- patients who come in homeless, mentally ill, to dump someone on a sidewalk in freezing temperatures with no shoes and a hospital gown, we've seen the videos, mm-hmm. it, it, it upsets the core of your humanity. Mm-hmm. And 
to at least close that okay. gentleman and then have, um, you know, numbers at the ready for social services to call a homeless shelter for a pickup. So that person at least has a place to stay that night and, and hopefully, you know, I, I know, you know, social circumstances, they're not perfect. But to dump somebody on a sidewalk is unconscionable. What if he says, I don't want to go? What, what if he said, you, you, you call, the, you call the, the shelter and the shelter says, okay, we're going to have somebody come over to pick him up. He says, no, I, I, I don't want to go. I, I want to stay here. What do you do? Well, well, they got him out of the hospital, yeah. didn't they? They got him out of the hospital so they can, they can dress him. I doubt that he would um, uh, put up a big stink about yeah. having a pair of shoes and a warm coat. Right. I, I'm, I'm not disagreeing with you. I'm not disagreeing with dressing him. I, I, I agree with you. I, I think, yeah. and I'm sure they've got clothes sitting around with that. But I guess, to, to me, the larger issue, the, I mean, this happened a couple of weeks ago with the same guy. West Dallas police took him. I think after he left one hospital, a different hospital, they took him to a shelter, and then he, he's immediately back out on the streets again. I mean, it's... It, is, it, is there... And the, the problem is is bigger than you yep. and I trying to solve it this way because a your your, your yeah. first statement mental illness needs to be dealt with on a on a bigger scale right. and institutionalizing has um, has fallen to the wayside in our country unfortunately. Yeah. Okay. Now thanks for calling. Right, and again, I, I I'm not. I, I guess I'm I'm just trying to make people think about this because I I understand everybody sees the video and they're appalled and Aurora understands that there's an issue and they're having a task force to deal with this and 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 I get it and I think you make an outstanding point Lisa that I'm sure the hospital has all sorts of clothing sitting around you you give the guy you know spare clothing whatever you give the guy a pair of pants you give him some shoes you give him a jacket and but but at some point in time you're going to have to put him out on the street I mean I mean you're you're going to have to do that and, okay, if the protocol should be we're always going to call a homeless shelter or something, I actually don't have a problem with that. But, of course, in this particular case, that that's what apparently happened a couple weeks ago. Uh, another hospital, I think, calls the West Dallas police. They pick the guy up. They take him to a homeless shelter. And then he, he just he walks away. He's back out on the street and he's back in the hospital. I, and th- this is an ongoing problem. And I guess the larger thing is. It's a hospital, but if it was the library, if it was, you know, a a restaurant or a bar or, you know, you name it, somebody walks in the federal building, you know, the state county building. At some point in time, if you put somebody back out on the street in this situation, um, are are you going to be to blame for this? And Aurora is getting all sorts of heat and and maybe deservedly because the pictures here are bad. But there is a larger problem. And I don't know what a task force is going to do. 414-799-1620. Gary in Waukesha. Gary, you're on WTMJ. Hello. Hi, Jeff. It's actually Carrie. Oh, Carrie. uh, Hi, Carrie. These are not clothiers. They're not restaurants. They're not hotels. And you have a lot of people using the emergency room as a place to get a meal. They bring in family members, friends with them to get it. Can they get something to eat too? This goes on and on. Every time they walk through the emergency room, I know a lot of people that work there. It's two, three thousand bucks on the taxpayer. You know, I get it. You want to be somewhere that's warm and has a hot cocoa machine and all that, but that's kind of what the public libraries are for, aren't they? 
Well, I, well, actually, I would argue, thanks to the call, I mean, I would argue the public libraries are for people who want to go and, and read, not people who want to hang out. I mean, I, I understand that there is an issue with homelessness. I understand there is an issue with mental illness. And I'm not, I'm really not insensitive to this. Actually, I'm one of the guys who has just railed for years and years about the state law, which makes it so difficult for us to be able to confine obviously mentally ill people who choose to be out on, on the streets. But I, I am somewhat sympathetic to a, a hospital situation, and maybe what they need to do is have a protocol. The protocol being when you have somebody, one of these hospital jumpers, maybe the protocol is you call the police department or you call the shelter and the shelter come picks them up. If the person doesn't want to go, I, I don't exactly know what you can do, though, because I, I do know that, again, hospitals are for people who are, are sick, and at some point in time when somebody has been treated and they're discharged, that they have to leave. I mean, don't don't they? Um, don't they? And my answer would be yes. Let's see. Um, I have a texture. I worked in a community emergency room for 17 years and took care of patients like this. When they refuse to get dressed and you attempt to help them against their will, you can be arrested for assault. Well, it, it's it's a problem here. And again, I understand we want to beat up on Aurora because the the images are. You know, the images are bad. Um, let's see. Another text. I think the hospital was right in this situation. Disappointing the people do this. What is the hospital supposed to do then when they were all filled up with these jumpers and there are people there that actually need urgent care or are paying patients? 414-799-1620. We continue the conversation next. 1222, Jeff Wagner. 1225, Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. I, look, I'm just trying to make you think about this. This Aurora story, to me, is nowhere near as clear-cut as you think. Kathy in Glendale writes, It's ridiculous. I spent eight years working at Freighter in social services and dealt with the issue of frequent flyers with mental health issues daily, especially since the Milwaukee County mental health system was across the street. Many of these frequent flyers abuse the system, have been kicked out of shelters for noncompliance, and use the hospital facility as a hotel. Hospitals are for sick people. These patients are given bus tickets and even cab vouchers and even clothes to wear, which they don't use most of the time. These frequent flyers are known by all the area hospitals. There are very few resources for mentally ill people without a place to go. Before people blame the hospital for doing procedures, they should spend a day in a local emergency room. Well, that's that that's I mean again that's that's my point. I don't know what the I don't know what Aurora's policies were and obviously Aurora says they didn't quite handle this right, but what are you supposed to do if you have one of these hospital jumpers who goes from hospital to hospital, gets himself admitted and then ends up getting discharged but doesn't want to go? Now I do agree if he'll wear them, give him a pair of clothes or something that you have would be a good thing, but what what's the hospital supposed to do? Eric in Sturgeon Bay. Eric, you're on WTMJ. Good morning. Hi Eric. So uh, I'm a paramedic in Milwaukee, and we transport these patients all the time from hospital to hospital over and over. They'll have wristbands on from one facility to the next, and it's just a never-ending thing. Right, and, and, I guess, and I guess, you know, what 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 are the hospitals supposed to do? I mean, hospitals are for people who are sick. Once they're treated, you're, you're discharged. I mean, you can't expect to stay in the hospital, can you? Well, no, you can't. And the problem is the mental health and alcohol and drug abuse, the program is uh, not there anymore. Right. And so they'll walk out of the hospital and get discharged because they're not compliant. They're learn-orientated times four, and they refuse treatment, and they have nothing to do. We have 75 people sitting in triage, no beds upstairs, and people are waiting, people in the hallways. And there's nowhere to even admit 
the critically ill patients. Yeah, I mean, see, I would be interested because, like, the, in the TV reports in the paper, you, you've got you know one of the, these groups for the homeless that are are ripping on Aurora. Well, I'd be curious to know what this guy's story was because West Dallas police brought him to a shelter two weeks ago or something after he left the previous hospital, and, and now he's out again. I mean, did he get thrown out of the shelter? Did he walk away from the shelter? I mean, you know, what what's going on there? I just don't think it's fair to necessarily blame Aurora for this, and I think it's a larger problem that's going a on. A lot of it is called AMA, Against Medical Advice, so they're not taking any treatment modality that's, that's being offered to them. They get offered to go different places. They can sit in the emergency room when it's like 10 degrees below, and nobody really cares. But when they're disruptive other patients and combative, which most of these guys are due to their mental illness and their, their ingestion of alcohol or drugs, uh, it's just a never-ending system. I mean, I just got off a 60-hour shift, and I probably know this individual you're talking about. <laughs> and I go to West Dallas. I go to every hospital in Milwaukee. And ninety percent of my calls can be that, right? I mean, and it's—I mean, it's—it's. It's, and again, I don't, I don't know this particular guy, but my guess is he is one of a handful of people well known to all the different hospitals. No, thanks for the call. So again, I understand we want to beat up on Aurora. Oh, this is terrible! They put this homeless guy out. Well, all right, it, it's a—it's a much larger problem. And before we want to beat up on Aurora, I guess people should, I think, have to have an answer for, you know, what are you going to do with the situation? And if you ran a business, you run an oil change business, and the guy comes in, sits down, um, decides he doesn't want to leave when you're getting ready to close and you put him out on the street, okay, are you going to be the bad guy? Now, I understand the protocol should be, you know, call a homeless shelter and see if you can find him a spot. But at the same time, you know, if you're a hospital, you're supposed to be treating Ill patients. Just saying. Big story number one. Big story number two. I'm a contraindicator on this one as well. Stick around. It's coming up. It's 1229. 1236. Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. Okay, Brew, who is producing the show today and always. Uh, we moved to Milwaukee from the East Coast when I was like nine or ten years old. And one of the toughest parts of the transi- transition is there were certain phrases that you use in Milwaukee or southeastern Wisconsin that you don't use anywhere else in the world. And I I admit to this day, I still have trouble with some of them. For example, Rue, my producer, when you pull up at an intersection and there's one of those things that controls who goes and who stays and whose turn it is to go, what do you call that? You call it a traffic light. Well, yes, I I call it a stoplight. But many people around here call it a stop and go light, you know, and, and it's and it's true. You can stop and then you go. But I, I just I could never refer to it as a stop and go light. OK, the thing that I still had the most trouble with was bubbler. Now, Gru, do you call it? Is it a water fountain or is it a bubbler? It's a water fountain. Me, me too. I, I mean, it, it's just I, I remember moving here and it was people say, OK, you go, go down to the bubbler. I'm going, what, what do you mean the, the bubbler? I, I I could not get used to it. And decades later, I still can't get used to it. it. It's it's a water fountain. That's what you drink out of. But calling it a bubbler is is a uniquely Milwaukee thing. That is, as an aside, a bubbler is in the news or a water fountain is in the news. And perhaps you, you saw these different reports. At Franklin High School, they have a bubbler slash water fountain that was donated by the class of 2013, and it, it's in it's in the hallway. What happened the other day is as part of a really bad joke or a prank or a racist statement or or whatever. 
you had some stupid kid who decided that he was going to try to do a, a mocking thing of segregation in the 30s and 40s and 50s where you had restrooms or water fountains that were used by white people and restrooms or water fountains that were used by people who weren't white. And, you know, you, we've all seen the pictures from the segregated South where you had the, the two water fountains side by side and one said whites and the other said colored. And that, that Horrible, horrible time in American history, just appalling. All right, no question about it. So the other day at Franklin High School, you have some idiot, some idiot who decides, here, what I'm going to do is I'm going to post signs. So he goes to this water fountain bubbler that was donated by the class of 2013, and he puts up a little handwritten sign that says whites, and then next to it on the wall, where I don't think there's a water fountain, he puts up a sign that says colored. Okay, all right, Um, awful. Right, right, and and it's it appears to be one kid. Again, I don't know what his motivation is. I don't know if he was trying to make a racist statement or whether he thought this was going to be funny or whatever. It's completely and totally inappropriate. There's no justification for this. The school district ha- found out who did it, and so the kid is being disciplined. And, and I don't know what the discipline's going to be. I don't know if he's going to be expelled or, or whatever. But but the school district did it. They caught who did it. And they are going to punish them. And, you know, I, I hope it is an appropriate punishment. And so we, we know who did it. And we know it's, again, it's it's one kid who did this because he thought it was funny or he was racist or whatever. I, I don't know what the motivation was, but it's one kid. All right. So you have then a series of organizations, the NAACP, Milwaukee Branch, the League of United Latin American Citizens of Wisconsin, and the Jewish Community Relations Council of Milwaukee Jewish Federation, um, they issue a statement saying that they are deeply concerned about the events that transpired at Franklin High School. Um, they call it an act of intolerance, which it, you know, it, it was, and so they denounce it. Franklin High School sends out a letter saying, hey, you know, this is a racist image. We don't tolerate this stuff. We know who did it. We're going to punish him. All right? So that's how it's handled. But, but these groups are, are going further. And instead of just treating this as a one-off, here's what we, they say. While we appreciate that administrators issued a statement disavowing this despicable action, the incident demonstrates the need for the school and the district to take immediate and ongoing action to make the school more inclusive and respectful of different cultures. Unfortunately, Franklin High School, like many schools and districts, does not recognize or celebrate the federal holiday recognizing the achievements of Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. We ask that the district consider changing that policy. Today's action highlights the urgency of taking actions to ensure that the school celebrates tolerance and inclusion as part of its curriculum and culture. Okay, 414-799-1620. Nobody should defend the kid who did this. All right, and again, I don't know what his motivation was, whether he thought he was being clever, if he thought he was clever, he wasn't, This is whether he's a racist, I don't know any of that. They caught the kid and they punished him. 414-799-1620. That is the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. Is the fact that you have one kid who engages in what is clearly racist, inappropriate behavior. Is that an indictment of the entire school system? Is that a statement that, well, 
Uh, the, the school needs to take immediate and ongoing action to make the school more inclusive. We've got to recognize Dr. Martin Luther King Day. It should be a holiday. Or is this one kid who behaved in an abysmal fashion and deserves to be punished? 414-799-1620. That's the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. I am all in favor of, of punishing this kid. But using this one example of uh, again, the kid that behaved in the racist fashion to say, well, okay, this is justification for showing that the school's not more inclusive, or this is why we need to recognize, you know, have a day off for Dr. Martin Luther King's celebrate's birthday, I, I think it is, again, it's it's going too far. Maybe they have widespread racial issues, you know, at Franklin High School, but th- this strikes me, at least this example, it is a, a, a tragically misguided, maybe hateful kid who deserves to be punished. But I don't know, is that evidence that the entire school district needs to be more inclusive? 414-799-1620. That's the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. Or is it an example that you've got, you know, a disturbed kid with either a really warped, weird sense of humor who needs a severe talking to or a kid who's a raging racist. But is it an indictment of the school system? 414-799-1620. We continue the discussion. If you're on the line, please hold on. 1243, Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. 1247, Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. Look, I, I, I don't condone, obviously, what this kid did in Franklin. You've got, you know, one high school student at Franklin High School who goes up to a water fountain, I can't say bubbler, puts a sign whites on it, and the next to it puts a sign colored. Obviously, it is a racist gesture. I don't know if the kid intended in that way, but that's what it is. They caught the kid. The kid is being punished. So now you have these, these groups, the Milwaukee branch of the the Milwaukee branch of the NAACP, the League of United Latin American Citizens of Wisconsin, whatever that is, Jewish Community Relations Council, all saying that this shows that, you know, we, we need to recognize um, Dr. Martin Luther King's birthday at Franklin and things like that. I, I'm sorry. There's a disconnect here. You have a, a child who acts out in a racist and unacceptable fashion. That, does that mean that the whole school district gets tarred with, gee, this is intolerance, or is it just one latchkey kid that goes terribly wrong. Let's start with Vanessa in Greendale. Vanessa, you're on WTMJ. Hello. Hello. Um, as I told you, you know, I actually went to Franklin High School. I went to Franklin School System my entire, you know, from kindergarten on. And I don't think it speaks for the school system as a whole. It's a great school system. And when I was there, I don't remember anything like this ever happening. Mm-hmm. And, I, you know, to give a <laughs> and no, we never had off for Mount Musiki Day, but I also don't think kids are going to sit there and reflect on what that day means. They're going to look at it as, hey, we have a day off of school. Right. Well, and I, I guess I just see these as, as different sort of things. If you want to have a discussion about should we cancel school and have that extra holiday for Do- Dr. King's birthday, that, that's fine. Have that discussion. But I guess where my problem is you have, you know, again, one kid who acts out in this fashion, and this is, gee, we, we need to do this because it's going to stop that stuff. No, my guess is this kid would have done the same thing regardless of whether he'd had a week ago Monday off or not. I agree, and I don't know how long those signs were up there, and obviously it's completely unacceptable, but I don't know. I I would hope that they'd increase the monitoring during the hallways because that was always an issue in between classes. Sure. So you need to get a handle on that. Sure, and they caught the kid. I mean, thanks, I mean they, they caught the kid who, who did it. 
and he deserves to be punished. Now, I don't have, again, an issue also if we want to have a, you know, a broader discussion and, and if they feel the need to say to the other kids in the school and explain why this was inappropriate, although my guess is almost everybody in that school is going to probably recognize and agree that this was something that was inappropriate. So, I mean, I, I don't know that you're necessarily plowing new ground. I think almost everybody's going to say, God, yeah, we can't believe it. That's so-and-so. Ah, he, he was just an idiot to do something like that. And and again, the kid deserves to be punished, but it's cheap. We, we, now, we now have to indict the entire school system because you had one kid that behaved in this fashion. Vicki in Fox Point. Vicki, you're on WTMJ. Hello. Hi. Hi, Vicki. Um, hi, I think you did just touch on it, but I do think that this is an opportunity to maybe have some discussion with the general school population rather than just putting a statement out to the public. I think maybe working within to make sure that the culture of the school is an inclusive culture. Um, you know, it's a wake-up call to take a look at that again. Whether this one kid, I don't think he necessarily represents that there's a problem with it, mm-hmm. but I don't think there's anything wrong with trying to, Stay positive and, and 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 inclusive, and making sure that that culture is there, and having that dialogue with the students. Well, I, I don't. I guess I, I never think there's anything wrong with that. I guess my bigger issue, though, is assuming because you have one kid who behaves in that type of fashion that that automatically means that you've got a huge problem with that maybe it's just you've got you know one kid who's a jerk you know or or clueless right. or racist or or whatever and i guess that's that's the that's the thing indicting the entire school system because of, of this situation yeah no thanks i mean again i don't have a and i, I don't have an issue with uh, again, there, but I mean, see, let, let, let's let's reverse the situation. From time to time, you have you have hoaxes that are perpetrated by persons of color. You know, we've had those stories around here who, for whatever reason, you know, they want to get attention or you know, what, whatever the reason is. So you have persons of color who will do a, a hoax, and you know that old when that gets exposed. You know, we we don't say, well, gee, just because somebody engaged in a hoax, that means that we should stop trying to work for diversity or inclusiveness or things like that, because that would be wrong. You know, we we don't assume that just because you have the one person that's engaging in in that hoax, that necessarily means that efforts towards cultural diversity or whatever aren't aren't worthwhile. Well, isn't this kind of like the flip side of that? You have one kid that acts out in this fashion, you punish him, but all right, and and then again to the larger point, I take no position with whether or not you know it's appropriate or necessary to you know to close school for a day on Dr. Martin Luther King's uh, birthday which I mean candidly I've always thought that there's this irony you know Dr. King of course who preached you know diversity and who preached the need to uh, again try to you know better oneself and things like that closing schools I I always think there's some irony to that but but regardless that's fine if you decide you want to close it that's good with me but 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 is this the justification for it? Back with more in just a minute. It's twelve fifty three. Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. Oh, we have breaking news. We need to do it before the break. Okay. From the WTMJ Breaking News Center, I'm Eric Bilstead. We do have breaking news. You heard earlier today that Elton John announcing that his upcoming tour would be his last. Well, now we know he will be making a stop in Milwaukee. Elton John will play the Bucks Arena. February 19th, 2019, the final tour of Elton John will have a stop in Milwaukee. It'll be at the arena February 19th, 2019. It's 1253. 
255, Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. If you text me the word VET, V-E-T, 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 V-E-T at 414-799-1620, I'll send you a, a link to a story and some surveillance video of a carjacker running into an older veteran. And uh, it's an interesting story we're going to be talking about in the 1 o'clock hour of the program. Elton John, now, Gru, you are too young to remember the Elton John debacle in Milwaukee. I, in some respects, I'm I'm a little bit surprised. No, I'm not surprised he's coming back to Milwaukee, but and I'm glad to have him come. He's he's announced a farewell tour. But do you remember Gru the infamous El, the infamous Elton John appearance? Okay, you, you but you don't remember. All right, it goes back to 2003. Um. Harley-Davidson was having its 100th anniversary, and they were going to have a big concert down at Veterans Park to wrap up the 100th anniversary. And for weeks and weeks and weeks and weeks and weeks, they touted the appearance of a a special guest headliner. Um, They they had a good show. The Doobie Brothers, yes, they were still alive. Tim McGraw, Kid Rock, you know, they were all there. But they touted... Now, this is, this is, these are bikers, even, you know, weekend bikers, okay? And they touted there's going to be a special guest. Well, people, the speculation was Springsteen. The speculation was the Rolling Stones. Huh, those lights just kind of went out behind me. All right, the Springsteen, Rolling Stones. I mean, it was that that was the, the type of thing that people were, were speculating. So it was kind of a, a crummy day. It was sort of cold. It was early September. It was kind of dreary. Um, and people waited and waited and waited and waited, and they didn't say who it was. But people, it's going to be the Stones. It's going to be Springsteen. Well, out comes Elton John. Now, Elton John is extremely entertaining, okay, but Elton John is not necessarily the, the choice that you would have to play before a large group of, of drunken Harley riders who've been sitting in the rain all day after a week-long party. And needless to say, it got ugly. Um, <laughs> I was just reading back on one of the news accounts of it about how um, soon as as soon as um, Elton John came out, the, the crowd just looked look they stunned you know as he launched into his soft rock tunes and then people started to leave in droves it was and again elton john if you had billed elton john as the main act there it would have been fine but they built up uh, you know the, the implication was it was going to be somebody different and more suitable and elton john um came back it was a spectacular you know week you know it, it was just great but Harley did themselves in by bringing Elton John out, and um, um, it was a surprise, all right. But it was, it was kind of a dud. Eric Bilstead, you remember that the Elton John and the Harley thing? I do remember that. I was sitting right here while most of the staff was there. It was an incredible scene. Everyone was so excited to see who it was going to be, and, and then it was Elton John. And, and Elton John would be fine, except what are you shaking your head about? Well, no, no, I'm not really shaking oh. my head. It was just an incredible thing if you think about it. A live card set list that had the Doobie Brothers, Tim McGraw, Kid, Tim Rock. McGraw, Kid Rock, and Elton John. If you said, hey, you can see that show for free, most people would be like, wow. Right. But, but of course, that's not what Harley did. Harley spent the week weeks yes. saying, yes. it's going to be, you know, it's going to be the special guy. And people thought it was going to be Springsteen. People thought it was going to be the Stones. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. you have a bunch of wet, cold, drunk Harley riders, and you, you bring out Elton John. It was not pretty. But Elton John's coming back. But at least you know he's going to be there. It's 108. This is Jeff Wagner. Now, Eric, let me go on record. So so people 
both inside and outside the building. Don't misunderstand me. I'm thrilled Elton John has come. I, I'm actually an Elton John fan. I have seen Elton John concerts. He and Billy Joel uh, toured a while back. That's right. And, I, and they, 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 it was a great show. I mean, and I just, I've always wanted to see Elton John. He was doing a residence in Vegas at Caesars Palace, and I never got around to doing it. So, you know, he's making this final world tour and stuff. I am thrilled that he is coming to Milwaukee. Elton John puts on a good show. I am just saying, though, you cannot mention Elton John in Milwaukee without talking about the debacle from 2003 at the Harley. It is the first thing you think about. It it, It it really is. is. And, and And it's not really Elton John's fault. It's, in my opinion, it was always Harley's fault because they kept announcing some, this is going to be the greatest, kind of the, the biggest superstar ever. And, and people thought it was Springsteen. People thought it was the Stones, the Stones, the Stones. And um, and you've got Elton John and his piano playing Daniel, which I love. <laughs> but, if, but, but if you're talking about a crowd it's the, you know, of, of these Harley guys that have been here for a week and they've been sta- standing. I mean, because mm-hmm. they right. they're standing That's at right. Veterans Park in the rain for like eight or nine hours and they think they're going to get the Rolling Stones and they're going to rock them out. And you've got Daniel is fine. You know, I mean, and they, just... they came after the tailgater. I remember oh, the, yeah, the, a couple right. of our staff members had to lock the door in the tailgater <laughs> right. because people were worked up thinking we had something to do with who was playing. <laughs> right. And again, so I I am a fan of Elton John. Let me go on record saying that. I'm sure it will be a wonderful concert. Um, I just, when you think of it, you think of the Harley thing. That's, that's, it, it was Harley's fault. It was just Harley's fault. All right. All right. <laughs> we now switch gears. Time, time to get serious again. That was the breaking news that Elton John's going to be playing um, at the Harley, at the, at the new Bucks Arena next year as part of his uh, wrap-up world tour. And that, that's very cool that he's coming to Milwaukee. All right. Um, if you are a regular listener to this program, you know that one of the things we talk about from time to time is education. And my my point has always been that one of the biggest um, impediments to kids being able to learn is disruptive fellow students in the classroom. You know, if you've got a classroom where you have 15 kids who want to learn, and two kids who want to be disruptive. Well, what happens is those two kids are generally able to stop the other 15 kids from learning, and the teacher stops being able to teach and instead sort of becomes like a, again, it becomes a daycare center as you try to deal with the out-of-control students who are disrupting everything else. And there's been an ongoing debate about what do you do with the disruptive students? And there's two schools of thought. One is you get them out of the classroom. The other school of thought appears to be, well, let's try to work with them. Let's try to understand why they're being disruptive, but we don't need to remove them because that further stigmatizes them. Well, they're interestingly enough, there's a new study out today by the Wisconsin Institute for Law and Liberty that analyzes the effect of suspension policies, you know, essentially tossing the troublemakers out of school. And we're now joined by Natalie Goodnow of Wisconsin Institute for Law for Law and Liberty. Natalie, good afternoon. Good afternoon. Thanks so much for having me on today. You betcha. Now, tell me a little bit about why this study was done, what you were looking at, and what the results were. Sure, absolutely. So just to give you a little background, um, this all kind of started under the Obama administration. So the Department of Education um, under the Obama administration made a big push to reduce suspensions in schools, um, in part to combat allegations of racial discrimination in student suspensions. Right, the argument being um, when you look at suspensions, a disproportionate number of, say, minority students are being suspended, and that's unfair. 
Yes, that's correct. So in 2014, schools were told they had to dramatically reduce their suspensions and instead implement softer discipline policies like an approach called PBIS, which stands for Positive Behavioral Intervention and Supports. So there hasn't been a lot of research on the effectiveness of these policies. So there's some evidence that they've been making teachers feel unsupported and, in fact, even making some students feel unsafe. Can, can I um, back up for just a second? Before we go into that, when, I, I love these acronyms, you know, you know PBIS, <laughs> um, mm-hmm. Positive Behavioral Intervention and Support. What, what does that mean in the real world? So PBIS, um, so a school that's implementing something like PBIS rather than suspending a student they might opt for something like um, a written apology or trying to reteach appropriate behavior, um, different things like that. So it's really emphasizing keeping kids um, in the classroom. Got it. Mm-hmm. I, so we I, wanted to- I want okay. you to apologize to the teacher for, you know, blowing the last three classrooms up or something like that. Okay, got it. <laughs> so we wanted to know what is the effect of the Obama administration's discipline policies on students' academic performance here in Wisconsin, and our findings were, honestly, a little bit concerning. So the results have made it clear to us that these softer suspensions policies that have been kind of forced on the schools by the Obama administration have been hurting academic performance in Wisconsin's public schools. So we looked at over 2,000 schools um, across seven years of data, And overall, we found that math and reading proficiency are lower in schools that implement these softer discipline policies, and that the negative effect is actually greatest in suburban and rural schools. Hmm. Um, Why? Do do you have any conclusions as to why that might be? Which part of that? Well, the the idea that the the negative effect is strongest in suburban and, and the rural public schools. Oh, yes. Well, part of that could be the fact that um, when you're implementing systems like, for example, PBIS, these can be rather difficult um, to implement, especially in schools that may not have as many resources um, as these urban schools. Uh, So that makes it just even more challenging um, to make these big discipline policy changes. Got it. If we look at Milwaukee, what was the biggest indicator that that you found the effect of this, this PBIS to be? Well, we found a a decrease in proficiency in reading um, in Milwaukee, which is certainly concerning. Um, And overall, I think this shows us that this one-size-fits-all policy for these schools um, doesn't actually work. The, and I guess, see, it's one of these things, you know, Natalie, that in, intuitively I think people hear this. And, and it seems to make, again, it's, it seems to make sense that if you have troublemakers and you don't get them into out of the classroom, all they're going to do is, is hurt the ability of others to learn. I mean, what, what is the thinking behind this PBIS in the first place? Is it that, you know, we, we can bring these kids around and we keep them in the classrooms, even if it is at the expense of all the other students? I mean, I think, I think these softer discipline policies are, are well-intentioned. I think we can agree that we all want what's best for these students. Um, and they're prioritizing, in this case, these individual students, but we worry that that might be coming at the cost to their classmates. Now, look, some of these softer discipline approaches might work in some select schools, and if they do, great, and you should have the freedom to choose that. But 
our research is showing that overall it's having a negative impact on Wisconsin's public schools. So where do we go from here? How, how do we turn this around, and, and where does it start if there's going to be a turnaround? Oh, absolutely. So I think there are kind of three big things to consider. First, um, at the federal level, I think right now we need Secretary DeVos to roll back these Obama-era discipline policies, and there's been stories that she is, in fact, considering that, which we would certainly support. Um, But we can see right now that those discipline policies are actually still being forced on school districts. Uh, We saw that just last week here in Milwaukee, for instance. So it's important that we get the federal government out of the classroom and let school districts decide what discipline policies work for them. Kind of the second level, that state level, uh, the state of Wisconsin should really further investigate the implementation and effectiveness of these softer discipline approaches and look for ways to empower teachers and school districts to make decisions about what's best for their schools. And you can see um, that in something like Representative Feedsville's bill, which somewhat addresses that. And then finally, just thinking at kind of the local level, um, we think school districts should be aware of the collateral damage of this kind of one-size-fits-all executive decree from Washington, D.C., and really kind of evaluate whether these softer discipline policies are harming their students and academic performance. And when you use the phrase collateral damage, what you're talking about really is the other students in the classroom, not not the kid that was the disruptor, but the 15 other kids who aren't able to learn because you've got the disruptor who's stopping the teacher from being able to teach and stopping the other kids from being able to learn. Right, yeah. The... Again, I think you, you talked about these policies as being, you know, well-intentioned and, and maybe appropriate. But one of the things that really comes out of reading the, the study is that this one-size-fits-all, the federal government knows best approach, in, in at least in the area of, of student discipline, really doesn't seem to be working. Right. No, absolutely. We agree. And I think that this control needs to be put back in, in local leaders. I, for schools that know what works best for them, a school in, in a rural part of the state is going to look very different from downtown Milwaukee. They're going to have, have different needs. Well, right, and I would assume also that the different, that, you know, different kids are going to have different needs a- as well, and it would seem to me some kids, okay, maybe an apology is fine. Other kids, maybe they just need to get out of the classroom because, <laughs> you know, that the, the apology isn't going to work. Yes, absolutely. Kids need to see that there are um, some clear consequences for their actions, that's for sure. Natalie, for people who might be interested in reading the entire study, where can they find it? Um, they can go ahead and find that at our website, will, will-law.org. Uh, Natalie Goodnow, thanks so much for joining me today. I appreciate it. It's a very interesting study, um, and it's definitely required reading, I think, for anybody who cares about the education of students. Well, thank you so much. Absolutely. Thanks. That's Natalie Goodnow from the Wisconsin Institute for Law and Liberty. Yeah, I mean, they, what they did is these are some of these touchy-feely things that, that sound really good on paper. You know, why? Gee, we've got a kid who's disrupting in the classroom. If we toss him out, yeah, the other kids might be able to learn, but but what about that kid? What what do you do? And and I understand. I mean, the, the perfect world is you get the kid to appreciate that you can't be a disruptive influence. But the truth of the matter is... Sometimes this touchy-feely stuff like 
write a letter to the apology uh, of, of apology or let let's sit down and talk this through and explain why it's wrong to stand up in the middle of a class teaching i don't know american history and start screaming expletives at the teacher well you can explain till you're blue in the face but you know a lot of times it's not going to make a, a difference so i get it if you can try to figure out a way to control behavior and and get the kid on the right track and keep him on the classroom that's good but at the same time, don't we have to be interested in making sure that the other kids who are in the classroom can learn? Interestingly, our text line's exploding in this. Jeff, I worked in a school using PBIS. This is a crock. It only rewarded bad behavior. Bad behavior had no consequences. You could only use positive reinforcements. It unfortunately only hurt the well-behaved study of student. Tons of money sunk into a terrible program, um, and I worked in the suburbs. Let's see another text. One of these softer approaches is called capture kids' hearts. When I subbed at a certain area school district, not MPS, they practiced it and they had nothing but severe discipline problems. Let's see. Uh, Sam texts, private education would never tolerate um, softer discipline, nor would the parents of said students attending. Why do we play these games in public schools? Yeah, if you want to check out the study, I mean, it's released today, Wisconsin Institute for Law and Liberty. You can check out their website. When we come back, it's actually a big story. Number three, the FBI loses credibility, or does it? Stick around. It's 122. This is Jeff Wagner. It's 125, Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. Let me just throw this out there. This is big story number three, and lots of people are talking about it. Do you trust the FBI? 414-799-1620. And see, this this is a difficult question for me to even throw out there because, you know, back in the day when I worked in the U.S. Attorney's Office, you know, I, I worked lots and lots of cases with FBI agents. I mean, um, they they handled all the federal bank robbery cases, you know, so I, I worked with – I. I and consider to this day some of my friends at the FBI to be very good friends of mine. Now, I was working with FBI agents shortly in the aftermath of, like, the J. Edgar Hoover days, and the Bureau was always seen as this kind of, like, real button-down operation. Um, back then, some of the big controversy was it was the time of the war on drugs, and you had drug task force forces where you had ATF agents and FBI agents and DEA agents, and the, the FBI agents were always considered to be the kind of like real button-down rules or rules guys, and then you had the DEA agents who had a reputation of kind of being you know the cowboys, and then you had the ATF agents, and you had IRS agents, and everybody kind of worked together, but there were these different stereotypes for all the different types of agencies. But but the FBI was always perceived as being kind of the straight arrow, the rules are rules, and, you know, you follow the rules precisely. Well, all right, now that that whole concept is kind of changing. I think everybody who's been following, you know, the, the federal stories involving the, the FBI, there, there's now, I, I think, some question about whether or not the FBI really was conducting a fair and legitimate investigation into the activities and possible criminal involvement of Hillary Clinton, whether or not there was a, a secret cabal of FBI agents who weren't happy with Donald Trump and were looking for ways to try to throw the election to Hillary Clinton by getting, for example, the, this tainted Russian quote-unquote dossier that was pretty much paid for by the Democrats and using that as a basis to go open up investigations into the Trump campaign. Yesterday, Senator Ron Johnson, um, you know, 
broke a lot of news last night when he went on a radio show and said that there's an informant that has told Congress that a secret society was set up within the FBI and the U.S. Department of Justice shortly after Donald Trump was elected president. And, um, of course, at that point in time, the senator goes on to complain of, of corruption at the highest levels of the FBI and the suggestion that there's a secret society of staffers within the Department of Justice and the FBI who are working against the president. So let's tee this up. 414-799-1620. That is the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. Is this is just is this just kind of the, like the, the wild-eyed stuff that you hear from the people who wear the tin hats, tinfoil hats from time to time, you know, the, the same folks who were saying, okay, you know, it's the birther thing. Barack Obama was, you know, not, not eligible to be president because he wasn't born in the United States. Is it that? Or has all this stuff that's starting to come out, the fact that you're now emails are disappearing, you're starting to see, you know, FBI agents who were having affairs with each other who clearly are displaying anti-Trump bias. I mean, is it possible that the FBI could have been corrupted? 414-799-1620. Is it possible that there could be a secret society within the FBI actively working to try to, I don't know, um, reverse the results of the 2016 election? Or is that is that just crazy talk? We discuss next, and I'll tell you where I come down on it as well. It's 128. This is Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. Don't you miss those warm summer days at the cabin? Calm water, loons calling, laughter, and happy memories. It's summer all the time at the Lake Home and Cabin Show, January 26th through 28th at the Alliant Energy Center in Madison. Whether you already own a cabin or are dreaming of someday owning one, everything for your special place is here, ready for you. Come up to the cabin, the Lake Home and Cabin Show, January 26th through 28th, Alliant Energy Center, Madison. Life should always be this fun. So the $1 down and then $10 a month deal at Planet Fitness is on now. Pretty sweet. That's $1 down and then $10 a month to be in a thumbs-up emoji place. Yes, I just said thumbs-up emoji. It means you're in the judgment-free zone. That's $1 down and then $10 a month. Join in-club or online at planetfitness.com. The world judges. We don't. Planet Fitness. Be free. Offer expires January 31st. See staff for details. 13 Milwaukee area locations. Annual membership fee applies. Participating locations only. See club for details. Going through the attic, my dad stumbled upon a box of Super 8 reels and 16-millimeter film cans that essentially documented a great deal of his early childhood. Amazingly, we found a digital conversion specialist who was able to bring them to light again, on DVD, no less. Oh, my gosh. Look at Dad. <laughs> so great. Oh, he was so cute. Talk about priceless memories. Do you have old VHS 8mm tapes or reels? Milwaukee PC can transfer those treasured memories to DVD for you. The Sighting Unlimited people are big fans of the Bucks and all our teams. A local, family-owned company, Siding Unlimited is Wisconsin's best contractor for new windows, siding, roofing, decks, patios, and everything to make your home better from the outside in. They demand and provide excellence from their team of quality American craftsmen. Call Siding Unlimited about your home project, 262-567-4513, or click SidingUnlimited.com. It's a slam dunk.
Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. Are you losing trust in the FBI? We continue the conversation in just a moment, but first, it is 1.30. Here's Eric Bilstadt from the WTMJ Breaking News Center. A judge in Michigan says she just signed Larry Nasser's death warrant. Nasser sentenced to 40 to 175 years in prison for sexually assaulting gymnasts and other young women and girls. That sentencing ended a seven-day hearing that brought more than 155 victims or their families to court, including some Olympians. Nasser had worked at Michigan State University and for USA Gymnastics, which trains Olympians. Elton John is coming to Milwaukee. The music legend recently announced that he would be going on one more tour. It'll include the new Bucks Arena February of 2019. And Milwaukee Public Works Committee Alderman tabling four agenda items relating to the city's lead issues. No progress today. Time for the WTMJ Drake and Associates market update. Right now, the Dow is up 38 to 26,248. The Nasdaq is down 29 to 7430. The S&P up 1 to 2840. WTMJ Pella, WI.com, time saver traffic. 94 outbound from downtown through the zoo to Highway 16. No delays, 17 minutes to get out. 4145 southbound from Highway Q to the zoo. That'll take you 15 minutes. That's right on time. 43 outbound from downtown to Brown Deer Road is a 12-minute commute. That looks good. And 94 outbound from downtown to Layton. That should take you seven minutes. No problems there. The WTMJ five-day forecast. Cloudy with a chance for flurries today. A high of 31. Tonight, partly cloudy, a low of 21. Thursday, sunny, breezy, and mild, a high of 40. Friday, sunny, breezy, and mild, a high of 48. Saturday, a slight chance for rain or snow early on. Nothing major, though. Partly cloudy and still mild the rest of the day, a high of 42. Sunday, cloudy, chance for snow, high of 31. Right now in Milwaukee, 29 degrees. I'm Eric Bilstad, News Radio, WTMJ. And I'm Jeff Wagner. All right, a texter kind of lays this out. Hmm, am I going to trust the FBI or the wild conspiracy theories of Donald Trump and those trying to protect him like Ron Johnson? Sorry, Don and Ron, but I'm sticking with the FBI and the Mueller investigation. All right, are you? We're back to discuss. 135, Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. I have a text from Southside Chuck who writes, Jeff, I'm not one who believes in conspiracy theories, but if Senator Ron Johnson starts questioning things, I have to wonder. This is a man who doesn't want to waste time or money, especially taxpayers' money. Um, How are you starting to lose faith in the FBI? Dave and Grafton. Dave, you're on WTMJ. Good afternoon. Hi, Jeff. How could people not start to lose faith in the FBI? I know FBI agents themselves that are embarrassed and question their um, leadership. You know, in your experience, um, did you ever see the FBI pull a James Comey where he uh, went on national TV and no. cleared Hillary Clinton without ever getting a declination from the U.S. Attorney's Office? Well, right. And with this, I mean, I, I remember watching the Comey thing at the time, and he's sort of laying out the case that a prosecutor would make for charging her and then says, well, but based on all this, I, I still don't think that any reasonable prosecutor would charge him. Well, okay, maybe that's where you kick it over to a special prosecutor and let the lawyer make that decision, which is how things work. The FBI investigates the Department of Justice or the special counsel or the special prosecutor, then decides whether you take the matter to the grand jury or not. Exactly. And uh, just a deviation from, like you say, the the button down, the the. Everything right. that we know, putting it all together, how could anyone not 
have some reduced level of faith in the FBI. Well, see, uh, one of the things that uh, surprises me is the wrong term, Dave. But let's face it, this Peter Strzok, the guy who, you know, he was one of the big investigators. I mean, he was one of their lead investigators, and he's having this affair with the FBI lawyer. And, you know, you've got all these emails going back and forth. Now, I... I chalk a lot of that stuff up to puffing. You know, you get these these people that are having this affair and they're just exchanging things. But, but, but that's inappropriate. And the stuff they were saying was inappropriate. And I see. I kind of agree with you. I don't see how you can read that and not at least lose a little bit of confidence in the FBI. And the FBI still hasn't canned the guy. I mean, he's he's not working on the Mueller investigation, but he's he's still in human resources or something. How could you not get fired? It is mind boggling to me. Absolutely. And, and you know, those beltway bandits, the guys that are staying in those kind of positions in D.C., they become part of the swamp. And uh, everyone has a little bit of personal bias. But, you know, there's laws like the Hatch Act and there's policies and there's training. And this page from uh, Department of Justice and this uh, Strozak, right. they, they totally disregarded all three of those. And uh, their personal bias came out. And I think part of that is being in that D.C. environment for right. way, way too long. Which is why you, I mean, thanks to call, which is why you have the, the need to clean house. Now, let me say this. I, I need to see a lot more evidence before I believe that there's some sort of secret society within the FBI that's trying to, you know, surreptitiously overthrow the government or overturn the results of the 2016 election. I'm. I'm not there. I'm not close to being there. I, I'm just not. I, I do think, though, that when it comes to law enforcement, and we saw this in Wisconsin with the, the failed John Doe investigation, where you have partisans or people with agendas who have the great power that we give investigators or prosecutors in our society and you know everybody and there's very little checks and balances you know i firmly believe that what happened in wisconsin in the john doe investigation was a gross gross abuse of government power that should have been stopped a long time ago and would have been stopped if you had responsible prosecutors or you had, you know, the, the bureaucrats, the people at, like the old government accountability board that didn't have just such a partisan view of this and, you know, refused to, again, take no for an answer over and over again. Now, does that mean the entire system is corrupt? No, it, it, it doesn't. But it does show how investigations can go off the rails. I, I'm not suggesting that the Robert Mueller investigation is at that point, and I'm never one who's actually called for you know Mueller to be replaced or anything like that. I'm inclined to say oh, just just let this proceed. Let let's you know let him do his investigation and let's see where it goes. I don't think it's going to lead to anything that's impeachable or charges against President Trump. But maybe I'm wrong. I mean, I I don't. I don't see that problem, but I, I do see, and you're seeing this with the emails and all stuff that I think cause reasonable people to maybe wonder about uh, again whether or not the agencies are impartial and that's why that's why you have to be above reproach you have to be like caesar's wife and um i I think the fbi in some cases was kind of slow to react to these situations and so some of the problems they have are are brought on uh, again by themselves am i convinced it's corrupt um no 
No. Am I convinced that the investigation is corrupt? No. Do I believe that there's some secret society? Well, I'd need to see a lot more evidence to that. I, I'm sure there's people inside the Bureau who didn't like Hillary Clinton. I'm sure there's people inside the Bureau who didn't like uh, President Trump. Um, are they actively trying to bring him down? Well, I, I don't know that we're at that point. I think what you're going to look back at ultimately at this time and what you're going to find is no criminal activity um, but mistakes being made, including mistakes on the part of the investigators. Mike in Milwaukee. Mike, you're on WTMJ. Hello. Hey, Jeff. Um, you know, I, I think we're going down a very dangerous path right now, and I, I trust Senator Johnson, but when we started uh, accusing agencies without any solid evidence, like I think you were just talking about, we damage the system and we damage our faith in, in the integrity of it all. It, just like when we're, um, you know, how people talk so poorly now of our president, uh, you know, whether you'd like Donald Trump or not, mm-hmm. there has to be some respect for the role of the president. And you turn on any talk show and everybody is just ripping him and, and saying mm-hmm. horrible things about our president. Um, so, I mean, there better be solid evidence out there if, if there is this collusion. And, and But at the end of the day, the FBI doesn't do, I mean, they take their investigations and they give them to an attorney in the Department of Justice right. who makes the final decision. And you know that better than anyone. So that. Somebody else is calling the shots. FBI can't charge or indict anybody without the cooperation of a, of a, a federal prosecutor. Okay, well, Mike, and, let me ask you the question that one of the callers was referring to earlier, though. You, you are exactly right, except James Comey decided to publicly go clear Hillary Clinton without having a, a special prosecutor or somebody look at it. You know, it's, James I, Comey is a unique individual yeah. in that he was the number two in the Department of Justice for during uh, under Ashcroft. So if there's anyone who understands the process and understands the rules and, and the obligations of the prosecutor uh, is somebody who was a former career prosecutor before he became the head of the FBI. So, yes, I, I, I totally agree that he shouldn't have done what he did. Right. But, you know, as, after being a, a career prosecutor for all those years, I, I think it's hard for him to take off his lawyer hat and and, and not... Yeah, I, I I think Comey I think Comey got way over his head. Um, you know, it's, it's quite candid, and you're right. You know, he has all this experience and stuff, but I I think he was unprepared for the demands of that time. But right, I'm not accused. I don't I don't believe he was corrupt. I mean, you could argue that he was wrong in analysis, and maybe I I don't know that. I, I'm never. I have never been convinced that you know this country would have gained anything by charging Hillary Clinton. I just, I, I just, I that would have just perpetuated all the problems and, um, and I guess I'm I'm just inclined to let this thing play out and and see where it goes. And I, I'm sure if there is sort of the star chamber and the and the secret cabal, we'll find out about it at some point in time. I'm not there yet though. Yeah. No. I I think that that that's the way it should go. We should find out what what's at the end of the tunnel. But I think part of the problem with what Comey did is part of the problem with what we're seeing all too often today in our society. You get people like a Supreme Court justice, Ruth Bader Ginsburg, who says the things that she says about the president and in a position that should be neutral, what we want, you know, somebody right. who's apolitical. And now you get Comey who says these things about, you know, Hillary and what he does. I mean, everybody carries with them their their, their political views, but... Right. I, I think it, we're just getting, it's getting too common that people are, are expressing those views well in a position of authority or power, and that, that neutrality is gone, and we're losing faith in our system, and then everyone is, it, I, it just drives me nuts every time, I, 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 I don't even watch late night TV anymore, because the, the comedians just say such horrible things about our president, and, and you know, 
I, I didn't like Barack Obama, but I, I never said horrible right. things about him like everybody does on TV about our current president. And every newspaper article you read, it's always some slant against oh, him. Oh, well, there's no question about it. No, Mike, thanks. Thank I mean, there, there's no question about it. Um, what, what's the old saying that, you know, just because you're paranoid doesn't mean people are out to get you. <laughs> you know, they aren't out to get you. And they're, they're, they're right. You know, and I, I mean, I, I think that that whole thing is out there. I guess I, I, I've been hearing a lot. Uh, especially in some of the, the more conservative circles about people talking about, well, this shows that the FBI is out of control and maybe there, there is this kind of like dark state that's there. Do I believe that there are bureaucrats inside the federal government who despise the president, despise the Trump administration, and are doing everything in their own way to try to undermine that with leaks or whatever? Of course I do. And I, I'm I'm sure you can say that the same thing was true maybe when, when Barack Obama came in. Do I think it is worse because basically the the institution of government tends to be stocked more by liberals than conservatives? Yeah, I, I do. But but that's the kind of stuff has, has always gone on. I guess I'm just when it comes to law enforcement, I think there's been several missteps by the FBI, and the, the, this rogue agent is the clearest example of it. And I still, like I said earlier, I can't believe that they haven't fired this guy for these these different emails that he was sending to his girlfriend lawyer for the FBI. I can't believe they haven't fired this character um, because it sort of tainted everything. But I'm willing to let this thing run its course and see where it goes. I hope Bob Mueller is closer to wrapping up. Um, because the, the, the truth of the matter is, this is not good for our country. It, it, it's just not. If there's evidence to believe that President Trump has committed an indictable offense, well, by, by all means, go ahead and indict him. That, that's fine. If there's not, though, I, I think we should end this. You know, Some people were saying, well, they, they think this investigation is going to drag on another four or six months. Well, that's the worst possible thing in this country, to have this investigation continue um, into, again, the 2018 election season. I do think the special prosecutor has an obligation to wrap up his work sooner rather than later. I mean, my God, you've got all these different resources. You've got all these attack dog prosecutors. You've got these investigators. All right, go out. If you've got something, then fine. You've got something. But let's not let this drag on. It is 147. We've got a lot of stuff coming up on today's program still, including the Senate says go. Will they stick around? It's 147. It's 150, Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. Coming up in the next hour of the program, legalized lemonade. Will my producer Gru and those of his ilk kill Costco? And here, sir, let me help you shoot up with heroin. All good stories, I guarantee it. Uh, interestingly, the governor is scheduled to give his state of the state speech at three o'clock this afternoon. Um, we're going to be dipping into coverage of that during Wisconsin's afternoon news. I, I think you got a good preview of it when I had the opportunity to interview Governor Walker um, on Monday afternoon. I mean, I, I, you know, it, it's no secret. I mean, he wants to tout the accomplishments of his administration, and uh, he's going to clearly, I think, use the state of the state speech as a springboard uh, towards his reelection campaign. At the same time, the governor is going to be giving his state of the state speech. Again, it kicks off around 3 o'clock. The Wisconsin Elections Commission is going to meet to consider what its next step is. Now, you you will recall, and and I understand it's easy to get into the weeds on this story, but the Government Accountability Board 
was the out-of-control agency that conducted and or supervised the, the, the what we're calling the John Doe investigations that, in my opinion, completely and totally came off the rails. You had a special prosecutor who lost control of it. You had judges that were supposed to be supervising it and lost control of it. You had partisans in the agency that I think were giving bad advice and really pushing I think some politically motivated assistant district attorneys um, all in this let's get Scott Walker mentality, despite the fact that their legal theories were flawed from the beginning. Well, all right. And now you saw some of the most overt excesses, whether it was the pre-dawn you know, raids on, on people's homes with search warrants, something you just don't do. I mean, it's just prosecutors just don't do that. You, you kick in the doors at drug houses, you know, at six in the morning. You, you don't go to some white collar defendant and, you know, kick in the door, bang on the door at six o'clock in the morning, take all their computers. You saw these incredibly overly broad search warrants, which resulted in the seizure of all sorts of um, email, personal correspondence, computers, most of which had absolutely nothing to do with the investigation. So you, you had former government accountability board which was really in my opinion engaged in this this witch hunt against conservatives the legislature did away with it they split the former gab into two agencies an election board and an ethics commission a number though of employees people who worked for the old government accountability board simply migrated to these two agencies and um, the heads of the agencies, the interim heads of the agencies, were both lawyers who at one point or another worked for the Government Accountability Board. Mike Haas is the guy that runs the Elections Commission, the interim administrator. For some reason, he, he's trying to say that he, he wasn't told that he was the interim administrator. When I interviewed him last week, you know, I asked him, what's your title? He said, well, it's interim administrator. Okay, well, I, it came out of his own mouth. And matter of fact, I think we played clips from, from that interview where that's what I'm referring to him as because he told me that. So th- there's always been an issue. Anyhow, he, he wanted to keep his job. He refused to, steadfastly refused to denounce the investigation, kind of like nothing to see here. You know, maybe, you know, in retrospect, hindsight, it was 2020, but I didn't see this partisan atmosphere that, you know, people talk about. The guy that runs the Ethics Commission, he said, yeah, the Government Accountability Board was out of control. It was a partisan thing. That's why I quit in 2015. In any event, yesterday, the state Senate refused to confirm either one of the two interim administrators. And the way the Elections Commission is set up and the Ethics Commission is set up, um, the, the Senate has advised and consent roles. So, all right, they've, the Senate has said no. They have rejected these two. At 3 o'clock this afternoon, the Elections Commission is meeting to decide whether or not they are going to take no for an answer. Incredibly, the Elections Commission is going to decide whether or not they are going to reappoint the guy who was just voted down in the state Senate to the job. You want to talk about just a complete and total abuse of power. If you don't like what the Republicans in the state Senate did in rejecting this guy, oh, okay, fine, voters have a chance to vote the Republicans out let the Democrats take control, and then they can point uh, put the guy in if they want. But the Senate has said no. And if any Republican appointee on the Elections Commission votes to reappoint Mike Haas as the Elections Commissioner, 
those people should immediately resign as well. I mean, the way the law is set up, the Senate has to pass on this. The Senate has to, and the Senate, right or wrong, has said no. This idea that I'm going to stay even though I have been rejected is, and, and dare people to sue to throw you out or whatever, is just appalling. And, and maybe this was partisanship in the extreme. Maybe Mike Haas was treated unfairly. I said, all things considered, if I had been a Republican senator, I would have voted against his appointment as well. But, okay, maybe we're all wrong on that. But the bottom line is the Senate has said no. If the Elections Commission goes ahead and reappoints him with Republican votes, every Republican on the Elections Commission should resign. No question about it. It's 156. This is Jeff Wagner. Jeff Wagner, WTMJ, coming up in about 20 minutes. Is my producer Gru and his ilk, are they killing Costco? Hmm, we'll be talking about that. And a story out of Philadelphia, I'm sure it seems like a good idea to some, but I think it's got disaster written all over it. But first, first, lemonade stands. What are you going to talk about with lemonade stands? Every summer, it seems we have a story or two about kids who set up lemonade stands, and then you have the reports of the cops or the Board of Health people who go out and shut down the lemonade stands, sometimes because uh, stores in the area have complained, sometimes because um, other people have complained, well, you know, you, you know, these kids are selling lemonade, and, and you don't know, and, and chocolate chip cookies, and you don't know the circumstances under which they're making the, the lemonade, you know, it, and people could end up getting sick, and, and we always have a discussion. Well, that might, well, that issue might be going away, at least in some respects. Yesterday, the Wisconsin Assembly approved a bill that would legalize children's lemonade stands. The bill would allow a minor to operate a temporary food stand without a local permit or a license or a state food processing or retail food establishment license. Right, So you could go out, you could open up that stand, and you don't have to have the commercial kitchen. You don't need the permit. You don't need the license. Now, the catch is that the stand cannot generate more than $1,000 in annual sales, must be operated on a temporary basis, and must be on private property. So... In other words, if you're going to go out and sell lemonade, you've got to do it presumably from your front lawn. And I'm, I'm interesting. I'm trying to think the, the neighborhood that I've lived for the last 30 years. You've got the you've got the front lawns, and then you've got sidewalks, and then you have that little area, whatever you want to call it, that little grass area between the sidewalk and the street. I don't know if that's private property or not. That's normally where the kids set up the lemonade stands because they want to be right by the road. So I don't know if they could do that there or not. But in any event, that's the thing. Miners could operate lemonade stands, essentially, or temporary food stands. So you could sell, 
you know, you could sell lemonade, you could sell presumably cookies, you could sell whatever you want. The deal is it has to be on private property, it has to be on a temporary basis, and it can't generate more than $1,000 in annual sales. Uh, the Assembly approved the bill on a voice vote yesterday. It's now going to go to the state Senate. All right, just one segment, but I am curious. Our number is 414-799-1620. That is the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. One of the things that we are always concerned about, and it is a legitimate concern, is you don't want people, you want to make sure that if people are, are selling things, you want to make sure that, that the stuff that they're selling is not dangerous. You want to make sure that there's appropriate sanitary conditions. Nobody wants people getting botulism. Nobody wants people getting sick. This bill would essentially allow those lemonade stands or cookie sales or whatever to operate um, as long as, again, it's not generating more than $1,000 in revenue. It has to be temporary. 414-799-1620. That's the Accident Mortgage Talk and Text Line. Now, I understand, and, and I, whenever we've talked about this before, my position has always been, look, it's a kid's lemonade stand. Let's reward initiative. And, yeah, I don't know what the kid is doing when they're making the lemonade or mom is making the lemonade in the kitchen, but I, I just don't remember any stories. I mean, kids' lemonade stands have been going on since I was a kid, and I don't rec- remember any sort of stories about widespread botulism outbreaks because, you know, somebody went to the little eight-year-old who was selling the lemonade at the card table on the corner. I mean, to me, saying that you can't do it has always been, uh, again, that that solution looking for a problem. But 414-799-1620, that's the Accident Mortgage Talk and Text Line. I mean, let's tee this up. Is the legislature about to make a mistake? And the two arguments you always hear is, hey, you know, people can get sick if they buy the lemonade or the cookies or whatever. And also, is it unfair competition? You know, if you've got the 7-Eleven that's down on the corner, is the kid that's selling the lemonade or the Kool-Aid or whatever, are they competing against you unlawfully? 414-799-1620. Let's start with Jack in Port Washington. Jack, you're on WTMJ. Hi. Um, firstly, uh, it's the easement is the area between the sidewalk and the street, and it is public property. All right. So theoretically, if that's public, and that makes sense to me, that's that property you would not be able the way i understand this law to set up your card table on that area right. it has to be on private property okay yeah officially again right. it, yeah it, i think it's more of a solution looking for a problem there's yeah. one or two cases that we hear of a year it's i just hope they didn't spend too much time on it i have no qualms with uh Right. What the you're you're not are. you're not afraid that all of a sudden people are going to in Bayside are going to start to get sick because they're going to Little Sally's lemonade stand. <laughs> well, no more than they have been, right. as far as we know, hasn't been. Yeah, right. No, thanks. And see, and I guess that that's kind of my that that's sort of what my my point is. And it does seem every year we have a couple of these stories. And again, sometimes it's it's the police at the urging of the Board of Health. Sometimes it's the Board of Health at the response of people who are complaining. Sometimes competitors. I mean, I I understand. That, that you have to have, you know, safe foods. But I, I think kids' lemonade stands, that's the kind of initiative that you, you'd like to reward. Now, it, what I try to do is if I remember walking and I come across the stands, a lot of times I don't want the Kool-Aid or whatever, but I do like to reward initiative, and I'll give the kids a dollar or two dollars or sometimes five dollars or whatever, and I, I won't take anything. But, but I mean, I, I think if you're willing to sit out, you know, and try to hawk lemonade on a, you know, hot 
Wednesday afternoon in July. I think as adults who've got a couple extra bucks in our pocket should be able to support this. Support this. John in Milwaukee. John, you're on WTMJ. Good afternoon. Thanks, thanks for taking my call. Hi, John. How are you today? I, I actually think they should be able to do that. And I think that, like you stated earlier, nobody's gotten sick from it. That not not that of, I know of, no. <laughs> that little piece of ground that it, you talk about, it right. actually belongs to the homeowner. Even though you have a right-of-way through there, it's just a right-of-way. You own, you own that piece of property. So I'm going to say that they could, they could set up their stand where, where they want to on, on private property. Okay. All right. Well, I think I don't. I, I don't. Thanks. I, I don't want to go down to the. I am not a property lawyer. I don't play one on the radio. All, <laughs> so I, I I don't know who owns that little strip between the sidewalk and and I, I should. I understand, uh, Jeff. You know, why well, weren't you paying attention in law school? I don't know. I I just I forget. I'd have to think that through. But but regardless, it, the rule is it has to be on private property. Is that is is it public or private property? I mean, I've, I guess I've always kind of thought of that as being my property, and maybe, yeah, you know, I that would be kind of my guess. But don't take my advice. I'm not a proper. If, if your kid is setting up the lemonade stand, don't take my advice as to whether it has to be on the front lawn or whether it can be in that little strip between the sidewalk. You know, make your own decision with that regard. But big picture, I don't think there's anything wrong with uh, I, the, the lemonade stands. Um, let's talk to Larry in Kenosha. Larry, you're on WTMJ. Hello. Yeah, hi, Jeff. That little strip of property is is not you pay taxes on it, but it's not yours because I put some stuff there and I marked it free. The police officer come by and he says, "That's not your property. You can't put it there." But I also think this is a great idea. This is great idea. I mean, the kids are going to be out there maybe once or twice a year, if anything. Sure. Uh, the people that I have a bigger problem with is these religious people that sell flowers. On the special days, if I was a florist, I'd be complaining about that. I pay taxes all year. Oh, and oh, Larry, you're, you're, you sound a little bit grumpy there. Do, do you have, do you object to the guys from like the, the veterans group that sell the poppies and stuff? You know, do you, <laughs> no, no, I don't know. It's it's the there's the people that come out on uh, Mother's Day, right. Valentine's Day. I think they're from the Unification Church. Those are the people that got uh, okay. I, 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 don't, I don't, Right, I, I get them. right. I think. I mean, I get. I just, you know, it, it's, it, it's, it's. I just. I don't want to get too far afield from my lemonade stand thing. I just think this is great. I mean, and I, I really have. I, I think you want a reward initiative, and, um, I mean, I, I think it's also. I think they've they've done probably a good, pretty good job of putting in a reasonable limit. I mean, I got to tell you something. If you show me a kid that's making more than $1,000 from one of these type of stands. And I, I want to sign him up for Junior Achievement because, I mean, this is a kid who's, you know, really got something together. Renee in New Berlin. Renee, you're on WTMJ. Hi, Jeff. Hi, I Renee. think this is a great idea. My kids used to make the lemonade stands, and they took great pride in in making the lemonade themselves and the cookies themselves. And mom was always supervising and I always made sure they washed their hands really good and everything. And this is, you know, a good way for them to earn money for, like, maybe they're saving up for a bike or, or oh, sure. something special that they wanted. You know, I think it's a great idea. And poo-poo on the people that, you know, say that this is, oh, they're all going to get sick. You know what? I hear more about people getting sick from food in the grocery stores and the natural <laughs> food markets and stuff than I do from lemonade stands. Well, I don't hear anybody. Thanks. I mean, I don't hear anybody getting sick from lemonade stands. I mean, it's kind of like, 
all right, you, you go over to somebody's house and they, they they serve you cookies or whatever. I mean, you, you could always get sick from this stuff, and I, I, I just don't see this all coming. In any event... In any event, to the extent this ever was an issue, the legislature, the assembly voted for this bill yesterday. It goes to the state Senate. I am relatively confident it will pass overwhelmingly. My guess is, I have not talked to him about it, but my guess is Governor Walker will sign this. And if the governor has the sense of style that I think he has, he might even surround himself by some kids' lemonade stands when he signs the bill. And um, our, our long state nightmare with regard to can kids have lemonade stands will now officially be over. When we come back is my producer and his ilk killing killing costco should we blame Gru? stick around it's 219 this is jeff wagner 222 jeff wagner 620 wtmj it is my fault you drew me in i spent that break trying to figure out the strip of land between the sidewalk and the curb you know, who does it belong to? And I understand you're a recovering lawyer. You should know that off the top of your head. And it's interesting because you do you do these different searches and you get all sorts of different answers. I've never heard the term road verge, but in some states, that's what they call it, a road verge, V-E-R-G. It's that strip of land. Other people call it just kind of like the parkway or stuff. Um, I, I, I don't have a definitive answer for Wisconsin. In many places, in many states, it's owned by the city or the municipality, but you as the homeowner have a right of way for permitted uses. But I don't know for sure that that's it in Wisconsin. But again, I'm sure I'm going to hear from lots of property lawyers who know the answer to that off the top of their head. If you decide to set up your kid's lemonade stand on that that part of the area and anybody complains, you, you might want to ask whether you, you can do that or whether you have to move the move the card table back off to the regular part of the front lawn. Just don't know. But if they do that, if some cop comes along and says, you can't be on that little strip of grass in front of your house, you have to be on the other side of the sidewalk, um, give me a call. I, I think that's the basis of a topic for the radio show as well. Okay. I have been telling this story recently. I have become... Born again hard when it comes to Costco. I, I mean, I just, I, I, for the longest time, I never, I, I just, I really didn't shop at these kind of big box retailers and all. My very best friend, Evan, has been a member of Costco for the longest time. And every once in a while, I'd, I'd go out there and I'd, I'd shop with him and he'd buy some stuff for me if I saw some things I wanted. But I, I really, I never went there. My wife just swears by Costco. So we go to Costco on a kind of regular basis, and we get a, uh, some, like, staples there, things like, you know, toilet paper and stuff like that, and paper towels and all. But, I mean, I've seen all sorts of other cool stuff in Costco. And the story I've told, you go to Costco hungry on a weekend, and I'm telling you, I mean, you just wander up and down the food aisle. They got more free food there, and, you know, and I'm, I long ago got over that stigma of taking, you know, eating free cheese. So, I mean, I'll just go back and forth in the aisle. You go hungry, and, and you come out full. But I, I've started, I like Costco, and what I especially like is that um, my wife is a member there so since I, I married up which I of course did you know I, I got to I got to get you know for no extra charge I got my own Costco card with my own little picture on it and stuff so I can now shop at Costco all right interesting story and in all places the Washington Post will Millennials that you grew will Millennials kill Costco 
Um, here's the way it goes. There's a Costco to one side of Gwendolyn Hammer's house and a Sam's Club on the other. But when the 28-year-old needs 12 packs of paper towels or 36 rolls of toilet, 36 rolls of toilet paper, she heads online instead. Once a month, she uses her smartphone to place a bulk order on Boxed.com, a website founded five years ago as a millennial-friendly alternative to warehouse wholesalers. There's no membership fee, and most orders arrive within two days. Other times, she stocks up using Amazon Prime. Warehouse club stores like Costco, Sam's Club, and BJ's Wholesale Club, that's the other big one, have for decades been an American staple, a place where families can stock up on bulk items, try free samples, bring them on, and spend the better part of a weekend morning meandering through aisles filled with 26 packs of canned salmon and king-size mattresses. But as more Americans buying shifts online, some retail analysts say warehouse clubs clubs may largely be left behind. The core club customer is older. It's generally someone with a family and a house. Um, Costco has been one of the least digitally forward companies out there. Um, they have their head in the sand when it comes to competing with places like Amazon and the others on the Internet. All right, let us tee this up. 414-799-1620. That is the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. Have I once again come late to the party? I'm Look, I'm the first to acknowledge I am not your typical sort of early adopter or anything like that. But, but I mean, I admit to kind of thinking Costco is cool. The ther- thinking now is Costco very much yesterday, and the idea of buying in bulk, number one, doesn't appeal to millennials, and number two, even if they want to buy in bulk, well, now what they're going to do, it, they're going to do it by sitting down at their computer and ordering it and having it delivered. Will Costco be thriving five 10, 15 years from now, or is it a dinosaur in the tar pit like Betamax and video rental stores and hard copies of newspapers? 414-799-1620. Are millennials going to kill Costco? What do you think? We discuss next. It's 227. If you're on the line, please hold on. This is Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. 235. Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. Grew. You almost let me forget doing that. I, I sent you this note at 11.30 saying, we've got to get this the story queued up. We'll set the story out. People can text me the word VET, V-E-T, and I'll share the story with them. And then you almost let me forget to do it. It's got to be all your fault. No, no, no. It's I take full responsibility for that. This story in the Washington Post about you know the future of Costco is really interesting. This guy who founded this, this thing called Boxed, in 2013, which is this online, you know, buy stuff in bulk. Um, his, his basic premise was he wanted to deliver bulk goods, you know, the 36 rolls of toilet paper, to shoppers who don't live near a wholesale club or don't have a car to get to the one. Okay, so that was the idea. You don't live by the Costco. You don't live by the Sam's Club, but you want to shop in bulk. Don't worry, I've got you covered. What he found, though, was a different sort of demand. He said, actually... He said it wasn't the people that didn't live close, but it was people who didn't have either the time or the patience to go. Now, I understand the issue of patience. I'm not a very patient shopper. In other words, it wasn't physical proximity or access to stores that was keeping customers away, but rather a lack of willingness to shop for toilet paper and dish soap in person. 
So the idea being, hey, you know, you just you order it and two days later it's it's there. The company began as a mobile app and quickly added an online site. It's grown rapidly to fill a niche among young shoppers, and today the company has more than a hundred million in annual sales, up from eight million in two thousand fourteen. More than sixty percent of the shoppers are ages twenty five to forty four. Hmm. Justin sends me a text. Agree that millennials don't typically buy in bulk, are delaying having children and often live in urban areas, sometimes without car. That spells trouble for warehouse clubs, typically in the suburbs, and created for baby boomers who live there raising families. It's why Sam's Club just closed a bunch of stores, and others like Costco will soon. I'm not ready to write the demise of places like Costco yet, even though Costco makes a bulk of its money by selling memberships as opposed to selling stuff. You know, it's kind of like the health clubs where you sign up, you you pay the initiation fee, and then you never go after, you know, the third week in January. Well, Costco kind of operates under that model. There's some people that use it an awful lot, but it's most people just signing up. As long as that's where they're getting their bulk of the revenue, I don't see this ending anytime soon, but certainly something to watch over the next several years. All right. I've been talking about this all day. It's one of the most interesting stories I've seen. And it's actually that the guy is either crazy or or he is a hero. Now, I, I come down on the side of hero. It's a Navy veteran in Texas who was, well, he's at a Shell gas station along a freeway about seven miles from downtown Fort Worth when... Somebody comes up and tries to rob him. Here's the uh, here's the report on the local news channel. No doubt in my mind, he's done this before. This is in his first rodeo. Surveillance video shows it all. A man approaches this 69-year-old veteran at a Shell gas station along Airport Freeway in Richland Hills, asking for money and cigarettes. Instead, he wanted Alan Huddleston's truck. He's in my truck trying to drive off. So I reach in there and I grab him around his neck in a head hole, I guess you'd call it, and I drag him out of the truck. Together they fall to the ground fighting. The carjacker breaks away, but he doesn't have the keys. Well, he come back out of the truck fighting me for the keys. The truck thief will not give up. More importantly, neither will Huddleston. He hops back up with more fight in him. But police say the robber is able to steal Huddleston's wallet and keys, and he put the key in the ignition. And took off with me hanging on the door. The Navy veteran who served in Vietnam is dragged yards, breaking a bone in his leg. Police say it's fortunate the suspect was not armed. He put up a fight and um you know, I would expect nothing less from our veterans out there. I'm lucky. That's what the doctor said. But Huddleston hopes this carjacker is not so lucky. By golly, partner, there's no doubt in my mind you've done this before. And I guarantee you it'll catch up with you if you hadn't been caught yet. But you will be caught. You're sorry. You're a sorry individual. I love that story. If you want to, if you want to see the, the guy. Now we don't do the right stuff anymore awards anymore on Fridays. But I have to tell you, if we still did the right stuff awards, my my right stuff award this winter this week would be this sixty-nine-year-old, you know, Navy veteran, um, Alan Huddleston. It's six thirty in the morning. He's at the Shell gas station, and, and they've got this all on surveillance video. He, a sixty-nine-year-old veteran, he, he's up there. You know, he's getting out to get gas, and this punk comes up and like 
tries to grab him. They get into the struggle, and like the guy says, I wasn't giving him my car. I put him in a headlock. And you can see that they're just wrestling around on, on the ground. Now, ultimately, so the guy ends up you know, grabbing his keys and, and winning, jumps in the car. This 69-year-old guy then jumps in the car after him. It is an amazing, an amazing video and you know, ends up getting dragged down the road. They, they haven't caught the guy yet, but they, did, they found the car a couple hours later. Um, Mr. Huddleston ended up in the hospital with a broken leg. So, I mean, I, I, I understand. I don't know if he's married or not. You know, if he's married, you know, Mrs. Huddleston is saying, you did what? You know, okay, just give him the damn car. You could have gotten killed, and he could have gotten killed. But I understand some of these times adrenaline just sort of takes over. And like I say, just I'm sure that this punk, you know, carjacker is just absolutely stunned that you have this 70-year-old guy, 69-year-old guy, who's, you know, putting him in a headlock and won't end up letting him go. I mean, it is it is an amazing surveillance video, and this guy is an amazing guy, and I'm, of course, not encouraging people in this situation to, you know, fight because it is fortunate that he didn't have a, a weapon. At the end of the day, you know, it, it's just stuff, and, you know, that's much more important than, you know, your your health and your life and things like that. But at the same time, it's just this carjacker just messed with the wrong guy. It's 242. When we And if you want to see the video of this, text me the word VET, V-E-T, to 414-799-1620, and I'll, I'll share with you that, that story. And you can see this guy, and you can see the surveillance video. And like I say, if I had a right, if we were still giving out the Right Stuff Awards, Alan Huddleston um, of Texas, 69 years old, for standing up to the carjacker, he'd be my Right Stuff Award winner. All right, when we come back... I'm sure some people think it's a good idea. I don't get it. Stick around. It's 242. Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. 246, Jeff Wagner, 620 WTMJ. If you want the link to that story and uh, see this guy in action, uh, it's the word VET, V-E-T. If you text me the word Texas, that isn't going to work. V-E-T will work. All right. I I wish I left more time for this. Um, I know some people disagree with me. Um, For years, various communities, including ours, have had different needle exchange programs. The idea being that, you know, people, for example, are going to inject heroin. So one of the things that leads to, you know, serious disease and stuff is people sharing dirty needles. So the idea will be we will have the the government go out and provide clean needles to people to, to use. And then, you know, the, the chances of them getting diseases or whatever, that, that's going to be lessened because, you know, they're not sharing needles. Now, at the same time, that, that has nothing to do with stopping the whole, gee, you've just overdosed on heroin that was a lot stronger than you thought. I have always had problems with needle exchange programs because, again, I think it encourages deadly, risky at best, deadly at worst behavior. You know, we have those debates. Philadelphia has now become, is intends to become, the first U.S. city in the first United States city not not to focus for not to have a needle exchange program. That ship has sailed, but they want to host safe injection sites. The city um, wants to find outside operators to establish a site in the city making it the first to permit medically supervised drug injection sites as a way to combat the opioid epidemic. The sites would be staffed by health professionals. So I'm not making this up. People can shoot up 
under the supervision of a doctor or nurse who then could administer an overdose anecdote if necessary. All right, 414-799-1620. That is the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. We, we've only got a couple minutes. But but the idea is, look, there, there's people who are injecting heroin. They are overdosing. There's nobody around them to provide them, you know, with a, an antidote or give them medical treatment. So let's set up a government-run place where you can come in, you can buy your heroin, you can shoot up, and we'll have doctors on staff so that when you shoot up, well, okay, th- they'll be able to treat you if there's an overdose. 414-799-1620. That is the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. Now, look, I, I understand the superficial appeal of this argument. Hey, they're going to be shooting up anyways. Doesn't it make more sense to have them do this in a, in a, um, in a, in a quote-unquote safe environment? I think this is one of the most ridiculous pieces of public policy I have ever heard. This, to me, encourages and has the state sanctify dangerous, risky, and potentially deadly behavior. I mean, what what's next? The junkie comes in and says, hey, you know, I, I'm having trouble finding a vein. Hey, nurse, can, can you tap can you tap my arm here so I can find a vein to shoot in? I mean, how... Given the fact that you don't know what it is that you're ingesting when you start to to again when when you start to inject cocaine heroin or cocaine or heroin and cocaine or whatever, no, what happens when you do have that that heart attack? What happens when you have that reaction? Yeah, there's a medical professional on a professional on hand, but aren't aren't we essentially sanctioning that? And if we're going to do this. Shouldn't we perhaps go all the way and say, okay, well, the problem with the opioid problem is you never, you never know. People, these junkies, they don't know what they're getting. You know, they're not used to dealing with the potency of some of the stuff that's out there, or they're getting the synthetic stuff or whatever. I mean, if this is it, isn't the logical extension then, let's just have the government sell the heroin in the first place. Don't even bother with trying to score the dope on the street. Just come in, and we'll have people there that will sell you packets of heroin that we know, you know, what the purity is. For 414-799-1620. Alex in Milwaukee. Alex, you're on WTMJ. Good afternoon. Good afternoon. All right. I, I've had about enough. <laughs> you're going to tell me now my government's going to waste my tax dollars on... Medical professionals junkies. watching junkies shoot up. Yes. Yeah. No, I'm sorry. Point blank. Let them overdose. Be done with them. Well, I, I, mean, th- I mean, look, I, I don't... I, I'm all in favor of treating addiction, but this doesn't treat addiction. That The problem is that you have people who are using the drugs. They become addicted to it. This sanctifies it. It takes, it makes it easier for you to, for people to do it, and it encourages, I think, the bad behavior. Now, I understand they'll say, well, at the same time, we're standing there and we're watching people shoot up. We're also going to try to encourage them to, you know, get off the, the horse or whatever. But, I mean, can you imagine, what, and what medical professional is going to do this? Can you just imagine the medical professional standing down and you have the person that kind of slinks in and they inject this stuff into their arm? I, I mean, I, I have seen, in another life, I mean, I've seen like the effect of speedballs, you know, the cocaine mixed with the heroin and what it does to people. I mean, what medical professional would stand by and watch this? Katie in Burlington. Katie, you're on WTMJ. Good afternoon. Good afternoon. This is the stupidest thing I've ever heard because it, it's 
okay, solving the quick death, but what about the slow death? What, are you going to have daycares there for their children that have been right. suffering with parents of addiction? Are you going to give them 50 bucks because they're not holding down the job? This is a whole lifestyle. And unfortunately, addiction affects every facet of these people's lives. Are you going to give them baths? Are you going to take them over to Walgreens and get some gloves and a hat? It, it doesn't solve anything. And furthermore, I think these people want this uh, lifestyle that is somewhat hidden, that is private their own. They're not going to want to sit in some room with some doctor and 20 other addicts shooting up. Well, right. I mean, I- I- exactly. Can you imagine, Katie, let's take the flip side. You know, can, can you imagine, you know, let's say a doctor, you know, who's taken the Hippocratic Oath to, again, you know, protect and preserve. I mean, you're going to stand there and watch people inject stuff that you don't know what it really is into their arms. I mean, what doctor are you going to find that would be willing to do that? Of course, let's pretend for a second we don't live in a world where there's Narcan, where with the overdose drugs. So you don't have to train librarians, and you don't have to train teachers, and you don't have to even consider an idea like this. What you have to do is look at the addiction for exactly what it is. It's a sad situation, but we need to figure out how are these people getting addicted, where is the source coming from. We know it often starts with prescription drugs. There's a lot of solutions right in our face that can do a lot more than just provide a room. Right. Well, exactly. And and nothing I am saying here is designed to try to discourage, you know, government doing whatever it can to, uh, again, deal with the underlying problem, which is the addiction. But having the government essentially sanction and sanctify the use of this drug, I mean, you don't know. I mean, see, one of the things that's leading to all the deaths, you know, what, while you have the spike of deaths, is that the people who, who they're scoring different types of heroin. They don't know what's in it. They don't know what the potency is. Well, I mean, what are we going to have now? Are, are you going to have, like, chemists on staff that are going to be there so when the junkie comes in, they'll give them, you know, whatever bag of heroin they've scored, and then they'll look through it and say, hey, you know, this is 92% pure. You know, you're not used to this type of stuff. This will kill you. I mean, at what point in time are, are we going to say, no, enough is enough? I'm sorry. We have absolutely jammed phone lines on this. Maybe we'll revisit this in the, the next day or so. Philadelphia wants to become – and this is the logical extension of the needle exchange programs okay i've i I understand the principle i understand it in theory in the real world i think this is almost government sanctioned suicide it's 255 john mccure melissa barkley are in next we'll find out what they have on their minds stick around